long before the raft of high-profile Fred Rogers documentaries, biopics, books, and remembrances, author Amy Hollingsworth's The Simple Faith of Mr. Rogers was the lone mainstream tome to explore the connections between his upbringing, faith, and luminous career. When Chris and I began making Mr. Rogers and Me, Amy's book was our North Star. It lit the way towards connecting faith, values, history, psychology, socioeconomics, and media in a clear, concise, and deeply moving way. And we hope to do the same. When we began shooting Mr. Rogers and Me, Amy was our very first interview. Amy, her husband Jeff, son Jonathan, and daughter Emily welcomed us and our three lights set up right into their living room. There was a deli tray and there was a fire in the fire pit. Amy's segment is critical in the film, transitioning the viewer from broad stroke Wikipedia entries overlaid with big picture concepts to something steeped in specificity, cause and effect, genetics, psychology, practice. Amy became more than a sounding board for my understanding of Fred Rogers' life, faith, and career. She became a sounding board for my understanding of my life, faith, and career. Because as with reading her books, talking with Amy has a tendency to open one's aperture on the world, seen and unseen, just a little bit. Her synthesis of theology, psychology, literature, and the human condition always has something major to offer the head and the heart. And though she joined us for screenings at the Heartland Film Festival in Indianapolis, a Montessori convention in Dallas, and the museum in Washington, D.C., where she bonded with Susan Stamberg over a few grammatical bugs in my voiceover, it had been a few years since Amy and I had spoken in person. Now, she topped our list of potential guests for this show, but when I emailed Amy, she was dubious. She was worried that she had little to offer in the face of this unyielding pandemic. But when we connected for a brief pre-production call, we picked up right where we left off, and it was apparent to me in just seconds that Amy had plenty to offer, as always. So we began our conversation naturally by remembering who had loved her into being, and went on to discuss the value of counting paper clips and the imperative to cultivate an eye for the glimmer. You know, it's funny because I knew you were gonna ask me who loved me into being, and my first thought was not the home. Uh, I'm not saying that my parents weren't nurturing or good parents. I'm saying that when I think about the people who loved me into being, they were teachers. That's where I found most of my meaning growing up was through academics and through the oversight of teachers who took a very personal interest in me. They saw your work and their eyes got wide and they leaned in. I had a sixth grade teacher, Miss Miss O'Connell, who I think was the first person who said, you're a writer. Mm. And even though I loved words, I remember when I was in second grade, I heard poetry read aloud for the first time. And I thought there was such meaning in the cadence and it evoked such emotion that I started writing like before I got off the school bus that day. So mm. I knew I wanted to be a writer pretty young, but to have a teacher say, yes, you're right. You are a writer and your words are important. She was really in my formative year, she was really important. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying my household growing up or my parents were important. I think for kids, it sometimes has to be some kind of activation outside of the home. Right. That sort of gives you meaning or points you in the right direction. So that was in sixth grade. And then I also had a teacher in high school and I'm not sure I would say he loved me into being. He sort of love hated me into into being because that was letters from the closet. So that was a much more complex relationship. But again, he nurtured 
my writing and said, yes, this is this is what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to use words to hopefully impact the world around you. For rereading that really lit you up, the words, the writers, the stories, the passages, the books. It's funny because my high school English teacher used to say, you read all the right people, but you'd never slow down to really distill. Mm. And he was concerned that I would never be a writer because I never slowed down long enough to really be a reflective person. Then, of course, (laughs) the other person who loved me into being was Fred Rogers. And that's what I learned in a very dramatic way from him is how to slow down and take time and reflect. So with the help of Fred Rogers, I was able to prove my English teacher wrong. When I did the audio book for The Simple Faith of Mr. Rogers, the audio engineer was listening to me and he was listening to what I was saying. And he said, you know, there's some deep insights in this book, but I'm looking at you and I can tell you're, you're sort of a type A kind of go, go, go personality. I'm just wondering how did she, he points to, how did she come up with this? which is funny because part of the answer is, well, Fred Rogers' influence in my life is one of the reasons that I slowed down and, and learned to reflect. And, and maybe some of that is just maturity and getting older and realizing how essential the examined life is. How assertively or, or actively did you try and create process around, okay, I need to figure out how to do that? Or was it unconscious and over time? I've been through a couple of physical challenges, illnesses over the years. And during those times, you're sort of forced to stay still. And it's really interesting because the first time I met Fred, he was filming a series of programs on fast and slow. Mm -hmm. And I had already decided to ask him, what is it about your program that you encourage people to slow down and to take time? Like, I know that's purposeful. What's the catalyst behind that? And his answers, he said, for me, I need to be myself. Long pause, right? And I've never been a hyperactive, run around kind of person. And the greatest gift you can give another person is the gift of an honest adult in that person's life. And so he said, for me, being quiet and slow is being myself. And that is my gift. So here we are, we're sitting across from each other. The first question I ask him, And he says, I've never been a hyperactive runaround kind of person. Well, guess who he's looking at? A hyperactive runaround kind of person, right? And so I think at the time I thought, oh, isn't that nice? He's kind of drawing a line between our two personalities. But over the years, in the more I got to know him, the we started writing letters and the calls, and I went back to visit him, I realized that he was modeling for me a different way to live you know his routine. He got up before dawn and he prayed for people and read the Bible. And then he went for a swim and then he took a nap and then he was in bed every night by nine. So he factored into his day these rituals that helped him reflect. And so when I went through difficult times, the first time he was still alive. And so he personally could guide me through that first difficult time. The second time he wasn't. I think what I learned was that I had to have those times in my own lifetimes of reflection and meditation. I had to develop my own rituals, whether they were yoga or prayer or meditation and silent prayer to stave off hitting brick walls. Mm. You know, I think really what he was doing is he was showing me a better way. Mm. The conclusion that I've come to through my friendship with Fred Rogers is in order 
to go deep, you have to go slow. I wonder if you could share some rituals you have around, let's just say your work-life balance, how you try and keep yourself uh, steady amidst, you know, the onset of things. It's harder these days, right? It's hard to be quiet and to think. And I do have a discipline, I do, but since the quarantine and all through COVID and everything, I've had to be a little bit more aggressive with myself. I have to set a, a timer on my cell phone for 20 minutes a day to force myself to read a book. We're pulled in by television and the news and social media and the internet. And so I have to actually set a timer to make myself open a paper book and read it because I think that is a different experience or I'll set my timer for 20 minutes and try to have silent prayer. I don't verbally say anything, but even just to quiet my mind for 20 minutes is hard. So when I say silent prayer, there's still a lot of things going on in my head, but at least I'm trying and walking, exercise, reading, meditating, yoga, all those kind of things that I think I've learned over the years. They can prevent difficult times or they can help you through difficult times. It's been difficult to pull away from the minute by minute of what's going on in the world. And I'm not saying be uninformed. I'm saying just it's important to take time apart. I mean, even rereading books I've already read. And I think it's because I want to make sure I know how they end. We don't want any more surprises. Yeah. What's familiar has been comforting. Oh, that's interesting. Can you give us an example of something you've gone back to? Well, there's a book by Thomas Howard called Evangelical is Not Enough. He's a wonderful author and was an English professor. Franny and Zoe by Salinger is my favorite Salinger book. That's a novel. So if you read a nonfiction book, there's usually not a surprise. But if you read a novel, you know, you want to know how it ends. Are you managing an internal imperative to be or not to be, thank you, good night, productive? (laughs) I had someone who read one of my books. I think it was The Simple Faith of Mr. Rogers. And she wrote me an email one afternoon and said, oh, I bet you're getting some great writing done. She would have lost that bet because I had literally spent the afternoon going through hundreds of paper clips and sorting them into the ones that went in the trash and the ones that were still usable. And so here she thought I was going to have this wonderful time of productive writing. And I literally sorted paper clips. That's all I had the emotional energy for. I mean, sometimes you don't have the emotional energy if you can just do your job during the day. If you can just breathe during the day, during what we're going through, that's enough. And so this whole push for people to be productive or to, hey, why don't you start a business or write a book? Huh? I mean, how do you do that when you're in survival mode? You can't be creative when you're in survival mode. I really think that we have to be much more generous with ourselves right now. Productivity is not the most important thing. I don't think creativity is even the most important thing. I mean, we're just all trying to get through the day. And if sorting paper clips is how you do it, then that's that's how you have to do it. The idea that you even remind me that it's survival mode, and maybe it's not dire survival mode, but it feels like it's borderline still. Yeah. I appreciate you using that word because I don't know that we're thinking of it that way, is my point, as a culture. Especially early on, it felt that way. The pressure that people were putting on other people to somehow transform this time into a new business or a book or something seemed cruel to me. It just is cruel to expect people who are surviving to produce. I really think that what's most important is just people taking care of themselves. And survival takes a certain amount of emotional energy. And so we're not factoring that into our day. And my job slowed down really 
considerably during all this time, but still it does take an enormous amount of emotional energy just to make it through the day. You know me and lists, right? And there are days when I get to cross things off and it was like, call this person for that appointment. And that was, that was a like heroic achievement. Right. And we don't need to be heroic. Another favorite author of mine is Thomas More of Care of the Soul fame. I love him. And he talks a lot about not being a hero, not being heroic. We always think we have to be the hero and sometimes we can't be. And you don't need to be a hero. You just need to get through the day. Mm-hmm. You talked about some practical things and it made me think of a book that I read several years back by Richard Rohr. He's a Franciscan friar actually grew up with him in Cincinnati. And the book is called Divine Dance. And he talks about the fact that when we have negative thoughts and experience that they imprint on our nerves, like Velcro, like instantly. But when we have positive experiences, it's like Teflon. They slide right off the nerves. Doesn't that make perfect sense Mm -hmm. when you think about it? Think about all the negative things that happen that we just obsess about. They imprint instantly without us doing anything. And yet the positive things, whether it's gratitude or appreciation, you have to consciously think about that thing for 15 seconds for it to imprint. So it makes perfect sense then that we have to actually dwell on something for 15 seconds before it imprints on our nerves. And so he was making a case in the book for contemplation and reflection and everything like that. And I've tried it the last couple of days, like some fleeting thing will happen and I'll go, that was nice. And I go, wait, (laughs) give it 15 seconds, Amy. You know, think about it a little bit longer, make sure it imprints because all the negative stuff is imprinting. So be more conscious of the positive stuff. The whole thing like count your blessings, be grateful, that can be sort of a hallmark card or something, but there is something to it when you think about the fact that you're competing against negative things that imprint instantly and don't we have a lot of that coming at us these days that we have to be more conscious that we dwell on the positive things in our lives. I love that. I do too. I read recently that it takes, I'll get the number wrong, but 60 days to change a behavior. So let's say I want to get myself jogging every two days or whatever, right? Mm -hmm. That it takes for that to be a true routine. And Mm -hmm. I just said to somebody earlier today, remember that if you exercise twice a week instead of, uh, you know, she wants to go for seven. I said, that's two X over what you're doing now, which is one. So why don't you start with that? So I think we tend to jump to very large goals, not give mm-hmm. ourselves enough time to actually do the thing, but also just not the time to process. There's science behind it, yeah. Every day, you know this, I write down at least three gratitudes, and now I know why it lands, because it's 15 right. seconds for gratitude. Because it's 15 seconds, right. It's neuroscience. What unexpected experience arose from meeting, befriending, ultimately, Mr. Rogers all those years ago? Have you had moments where you just go, well, This is a pretty funny place to be as a result of that. He sort of was nudging me in a certain direction spiritually. And I think I'm far closer to what he knew I could be now than when we first met. And I wish he were around to see the fruit of his labor. I think he saw some rigidity in my thinking, Mm. especially in my faith and spirituality. And there were times too, he challenged me or nudged me before I was ready to be nudged. And I came back at him very defensively. And of course, then he came back to me with much grace, which made it worse. He was always about accepting you where you were, 
but that doesn't mean he didn't encourage you to grow or understand that you could mature or develop. I think he saw that for me and I really wish he could see me now that there is more mystery and less rigidity in my thinking. You've had this wonderful relationship with Joanne and I wonder if you wrote the simple blank of Joanne Bird Rogers, what would the blank be? Oh gosh, she's so different than Fred. For one thing, she says whatever comes to her mind. I haven't verified this with her, but I remember she said in an interview that you couldn't trash talk with Fred. Like she would come home from the grocery store and say, boy, that checkout girl was so awful to me. And Fred would go, well, I wonder what happened in her day to make her like that. That's not what she wanted. She wanted him to go, how awful. But he was always so willing to give people the benefit of the doubt. I think she's a little less so, but strong, wonderful, lovely, funny woman. They're very different personalities. Amy, we talked a couple of weeks ago and I told you a story about what I've really gotten better at identifying beauty and appreciating beauty and yeah, how yeah, yeah. kind of bolster me when I'm down and sometimes carry me all the way through a real challenge. And I told you about this amazing hawk I saw. Well, it was a Cooper's hawk, we think. Yeah. And we saw it right above our backyard. So I'd seen it in this park down the street, but I loved what you said because it feels like if you just begin to tune into those things, you actually see more of them somehow. I think that's true. And when you told me the story about the hawk, it reminded me of something that Frederick Buechner said. Fred loved him, his writing, and he's the one who introduced me to Frederick Buechner. Frederick Buechner said, we are all more mystics than we believe or choose to believe. That we've seen more than we let on through some moment of beauty or pain, some sudden turning in our lives, we catch glimmers of what the saints are blinded by. Only unlike the saints, we go on as if nothing happened. And then he said, to go on as if something has happened is to enter the dimension of life that religion is a word for. And then he said, some of course go to the typewriters. There's always some of us who have to get it down in black and white. Mary Oliver, who's another wonderful writer poet, said that attention or paying attention is the beginning of devotion. The more you pay attention, the more you're rewarded. And again, it's we're coming back to that dwelling on something. We have to acknowledge what we've seen. We need to think about it and contemplate it. And then maybe some of us even take that extraordinary next step and write it down put it down in black and white. Mm -hmm. When you said that, it reminded me of that quote. And I love that because I think we've seen more than we let on. And when that happens, we have to go on as if something has happened, that something is different. I am grateful for you creating a safe and sacred space for me and Chris, but for me all, over of all these years. And thanks for all the guidance and sharing. And, and I hope there are many years of it to come and we can keep doing this. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you. In 2006, when I was just getting to know Amy, I was recording what would become my underappreciated Desert Star EP. The opening track was called Flirting with Disaster, an up-tempo acoustic number chronicling a protagonist teetering on the edge of overstimulation and crash. Sound familiar? The second was called Angels in the Atmosphere. It's a muted consideration of the magic and beauty and mystery always available just at the edge of frame. But I was ambivalent about the chorus. It goes like this. There are angels in the atmosphere, and the sky opens up when you're near, and the air grows heavy with light, and you say, glory. 
I'm Alive. It had come to me unconsciously, like most song lyrics, but was way more than corny. And it was biblical, but Amy loved it and encouraged me to belt it out with confidence. A few weeks ago, as we caught up prior to our shoot, I reminded Amy of the lyric and told her how I've spent so much of the pandemic flummoxed by the duality of it all, the beauty in slowing down the day-to-day, the horror of the ongoing loss, the magic in my found time with the family, my anxiety around our safety. And I asked Amy what glory means. It's nuanced, she said, and awesome. In the Bible, glory describes the manifestation of God's presence as perceived by humans. In Greek, it means the condition of brightness or radiance, but in Hebrew, heaviness or burden. I stopped dead in my tracks, flummoxed once again, lightness and weight simultaneously. Saturday morning, as I sat in the living room reading the New York Times, I looked up to spot the sun shining through the window. I paused and counted to 15, snapped a photo, and sent Amy a pic. Glorious indeed, she said. I'm alive.
Friends and Neighbors is brought to you by Five Pioneer Shag Brown Ale. Geez, that's great beer. Friends and Neighbors is a Wagner Brothers production. Watch on Facebook and YouTube, listen on Apple Podcasts, and subscribe to the newsletter at friendsandneighborsshow.com.